A very good afternoon to you all. I'm really pleased to welcome you to La Trobe Asia's first event of 2023. So I hope it's not too late to say Happy New Year, everybody, and Happy Year of the Rabbit. Uh, my name is Beck Strading. I'm the director of La Trobe Asia. And this event tonight, we'll be talking about China and the power of Xi Jinping. I would like to start the event by acknowledging the elders of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, uh, who are the traditional owners of the land upon which La Trobe University sits. And I would like to pay my respect to people both past and present and extend that respect to any Indigenous Australians who might be joining us uh, this afternoon. I'm really delighted to host this event to celebrate Professor Sui-Sheng Zhao's new book, The Dragon Roars Back. And I'm going to uh, show you the hard copy here. Congratulations, Professor Zhao. So this afternoon, we will discuss Xi Jinping's regime and we'll try and put it in historical context of change and continuity in the formation of Chinese foreign policy. And this is something that uh, the Dragon Roars Back really documents very in great detail and with great sophistication. As China attempts to reassert itself after harsh COVID-19 lockdowns, we'll try and consider what is driving Chinese foreign policy under the current administration. What is President Xi's vision for China in the world? And what are the implications of that vision for other states in the region? This is obviously a topic of great concern for us here in Australia. So I am delighted to be joined by our panel expert. Uh, Professor Zhao is the director of the Center for China-US Cooperation at the University of Denver and a founding editor of the Journal of Contemporary China, uh, which uh, for those of us in Asian studies, we know this to be an incredibly prestigious journal. So uh, it's great to welcome you here to La Trobe University and also to Melbourne. We're also joined by Dr. Yang Bin Chen, who is the coordinator of the Chinese Studies Program here at La Trobe University uh, and a very good friend of La Trobe Asia. So uh, Yang Bin has played a really important role in putting together this event uh, and, and this visit. So we're really grateful to you, Yang Bin, for that. Uh, and last but not least, Dr. Diane Hu is also a very good friend of La Trobe Asia and is a research fellow at the Centre for Contemporary Chinese Studies at the University of Melbourne. Always great to have you with us uh, for our La Trobe Asia events. Now let's get into it. So I will start uh, with you, Professor. The book provides an account of how the, the People's Republic of China's three transformational leaders, Mao Zedong, Deng Xiaoping and Xi Jinping, were able to remake the ideologies and the institutions that underpin Chinese foreign policy and shape its global activities and relationships. And one of the things that I thought was quite interesting was the book references official Chinese narratives that Mao led China standing up, Deng made China rich, and Xi will make China strong. So how close is this to the truth? Uh, of what these transformational leaders brought to Chinese foreign policy. What is the story that you're trying to tell about change and continuity over the past seven decades of Chinese foreign policy? The three transformational leaders uh, uh, we mentioned, Mao Zedong, Deng Xiaoping, and uh, Xi Jinping, have uh, really chartered uh, the Chinese foreign policy in different directions. So these three uh, uh, characterizations as a revolutionary and uh, developmental, as well as now the big power diplomacy, corresponds to the uh, what you talked about the Chinese talking. Xi Jinping, uh, Mao Zedong met China stand up, and uh, Deng Xiaoping met China rich, and uh, Xi Jinping met China uh, strong. So that's what the official uh, uh, talking statements about the three different periods. Uh, this is a very, I think, a clear three different um, periods and uh, uh, driven, I mean, uh, produced, charted by three uh, uh, totally different types of leaders. But they are also uh, having one thing in common. That is, they all have a new visions. And also, the uh, navigated uh, to survive 
uh, all prevail uh, in the jungle of the PRC politics to make their uh, visions prevail. And also they knew how to uh, mobilize domestic sources, such as uh, in my book, we talked about uh, try to structure uh, environmental environments, not the, 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 the uh, ideational environments, uh, such as uh, using historical memories, uh, such as the, the trauma, all the glories to justify their policies, and also to uh, use uh, nationalism in a different ways, or ideology in different ways. And in the meantime, they also try to restructure, uh, reconstruct uh, policy institutions uh, to advance their policy agendas. And also they knew how to strategically uh, respond to the global uh, power distribution and also international norms, regimes. So they have something in common, but with a different visions. This uh, way talking about transformation of Chinese uh, foreign policy is, uh, I think, very simple, but very straightforward. Uh, when I said uh, straightforward, it's so clear. These three periods are uh, distinctive. But in the meantime, it's also too simple because they also missed many other information. Because uh, uh, since the founding of the PRC, uh, we have uh, uh, about uh, eight uh, leaders uh, who are sitting at the top. Uh, the PRC recognized only five generations, Mao Zedong, Deng Xiaoping, then uh, uh, Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, now Xi Jinping. And these five could be uh, distinguished into two types. Three of them, as we mentioned, are transformational leaders. They met differences. And the two of them, uh, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, what I call them transactional leaders, uh, they survived the power jungle in the PRC politics, but they did not have a new regions, or they did not, was not able to uh, develop any new regions and put them into practice. Transactional leaders uh, are those who have uh, followed uh, or stayed on the course set by their predecessors. So these two transactional leaders uh, followed the policy set by Deng Xiaoping, continued economic development uh, priority or first policy. But then they also missed other three leaders in the PRC history. Uh, uh, one of uh, the three are, one is uh, uh, Zhao Ziyang, my brother, no, if we have a similar <laughs> last name. And uh, the other is uh, Hu Yaobang. And these two leaders had new visions. They tried to move China toward a new direction, more to the liberal direction. But they lost power in the power politics. So they did not make difference. Although they had new visions, but they did not uh, survive in the power politics. Another leader they tried to uh, forget is uh, Hua Guofeng. Uh, he succeeded Mao Zedong right after Mao's death. And, but he was also uh, defeated by Deng Xiaoping. So I don't know if we can say he had new vision or not. He tried to return China to Mao's time, and, uh, but he lost. So in that context, we can see the changes have uh, taken place only in the three directions. The three transformational leaders have been the game changers. Thank you for that. I mean, one of the, the sort of the contributions I think that the book makes is it moves away from, uh, I guess, what IR scholars would call a structural realism approach uh, to focus in on domestic politics in China, the jungle, as you say, of PRC uh, domestic politics. And, you know, this is, this is a book that, that talks about leadership, transactional and transformational leadership, applying some of those leadership models to China but also talking about ideas and institutions and that interplay between internal and, and external factors. Uh, and if we focus in on um, 
the regime of Xi Jinping for a moment. You have defined this as being augmented by personal authority and the cult of personality, the dismantling of consensus-based decision-making, and his ability to, and I quote, establish himself as the supreme leader of micromanagement. Uh, so this is you know, a, a kind of interesting phrase, and I'll quote again, although the ingredients and the strategic rationale for China's assertive behavior were already built up by his predecessors, Xi's vision helped seize the opportunity to capitalize on China's clout and bolster China's big power position. Such things as the Belt and Road Initiative and the AIIB and the artificial island buildup in the South China Sea, and this is what I want to ask you about, would not have happened if a different leader were in his place. So what I'd like to know is how, how do we know this? You know, just how important is Xi Jinping himself to understanding China's place in the world? And this book develops a leadership-centered framework uh, to understand the, the policy making, uh, especially foreign security policy making in China. Uh, you mentioned uh, uh, at the very beginning of this uh, uh, question that uh, uh, structural realism uh, cannot explain uh, the transformation of Chinese foreign policy. Uh, in uh, uh, 70, more than 70 years of uh, PRC history, as um, we talked earlier, we clearly saw the variation in the foreign policy directions. So the three uh, distinguished peers uh, were uh, very clear. And uh, realists would uh, uh, look at only at relative power, looking at uh, China's uh, change of behavior can be explained only by the relative power or change relative power. But China's uh, relative power uh, was uh, very weak in the early PRC, Mao Zedong's period. But Mao Zedong uh, had a very aggressive foreign policy, uh, tried to confront with both superpowers had war with both superpowers and uh, uh, tried to launch a revolution in the uh, all, uh, support insurgencies in almost all the third world countries and fought for uh, leadership of the uh, so-called National Liberation Movement and the Communist Movement with the Soviet Union. But China's power was not that strong at that time. So realists cannot expand that. Then. When Deng Xiaoping came to office, China's relative power was uh, not quite changed. But he moderated Chinese foreign policy. And uh, he turned China into the totally different uh, uh, foreign policy uh, direction, trying to uh, focus on economic development rather than revolution. So that cannot be uh, uh, that when realism cannot explain that either. Deng Xiaoping, uh, Xi Jinping came to office, although China's power has been powerful, he has been very confrontational, but he did not uh, launch wars yet. Only in the last 10 years, the only international uh, operation was with India, 2020. So realism cannot explain that. Another theory used very often by uh, scholars to talk about Chinese foreign policy change is regime type. Very often they talk about the uh, authoritarian regime is more aggressive and democracies are peaceful. That's a democracy peace theory. Using that theory, you cannot explain. Uh, they, they will assume that uh, as far as China remains authoritarian, its foreign policy will not change, will always be aggressive. So only regime change could change Chinese foreign policy. But we saw Chinese policy, foreign policy changed dramatically in the last 70 years. The regime has not changed. Same regime with different leaders there, and also some other theories. I don't want to get into them, but you can look at the book. Then I developed leadership-centered. I thought you, 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 you talk about domestic politics, but I hear I talk about using the leaders. Uh, those transformational leaders matter. In fact, uh, leaders matter in all political systems, but matter more in authoritarian and totalitarian systems. Elected 
leaders are very often constrained by operational parties, by public opinions, and by term limits. Authoritarian leaders in China, the, I mean, in China, the Chinese political system, authoritarian system, the emphasis has been discipline and hierarchy. And so they are not relatively unchecked by operations which I don't think even exist, and uh, by public opinions, or by their term limits. That all three trans transformational leaders, they all held office for a lifetime. Xi Jinping now is in a position to do that. And uh, so these people have a very, I mean, powerful, ultimate, ultimate authority to make uh, uh, foreign policy and changes or charted the direction to their own visions. But not every leader has done that. Uh, Mao Zedong, only Mao Zedong, Deng Xiaoping, and Xi Jinping, the three leaders, have been able to do that. You, you mentioned that uh, uh, those uh, uh, one bell, one road, uh, South China Sea Island uh, making, and uh, 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 Asian Infrastructure Development Bank, all these uh, will not happen without Xi Jinping. That's, uh, there are so many internal stories about that. I, for example, I talked to people in China for the uh, um, man-made island building in the South China Sea. Uh, when Hu Jintao was in office before 2012, there were a lot of people proposed to Hu Jintao about building those artificial islands. Hu Jintao refused because he was so concerned. If China did that, US would respond very strongly and it would also cause a lot of tensions with Southeast Asian countries. But Xi Jinping, when he came to office 2012, on the 20, uh, in 2013, advisors talked to him and said, we should do that. He said, great idea. Let's do it. He did it. Seven huge islands made by Chinese uh, people, by those military people. And without Xi Jinping, I will not, will not see that. And one bell, one road is also a totally Xi Jinping's uh, signature uh, idea. And uh, for Hu Jintao and uh, Jiang Zemin, for these leaders, uh, they try to emphasize so-called peaceful rise or harmonious society, all those kind of concepts. And they were not, they tried to follow Deng Xiaoping's uh, no key foreign policy, tried not to provoke uh, those uh, US and other uh, Western countries. So they will not even dare to do what uh, Xi Jinping did. Uh, this kind of having, having over 100 bilateral uh, agreements type of one by one road. It's very unique Xi Jinping type, although it's a very, very a big failure, I think. But that's very Xi Jinping. And also, uh, Asian Infrastructure Development Bank is another story. And uh, those uh, ideas were also fluid before, before Xi Jinping came to office. And in the early years of Xi Jinping's office, also discussed, but never put into practice until 2025, 20, 26. Xi Jinping met that uh, reality. So Xi Jinping really made a difference because he had a totally different vision. He thought China now should come to the, uh, 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 in his words, the central stage, the world central stage, which China occupied 200 years ago and was uh, inter I mean, brought down by the Western powers. So it, China's time has come. So he would dare to do all those things he thought China as a big power deserves. So that's why Xi Jinping has made those difference. Without Xi Jinping, I don't think all, what, a lot of things, what we deal with China will happen. Oh, thank you. Lots of interesting points to unpick there. I think that one of the, the, the important insights then is that nothing about China's trajectory is inevitable because it's wrapped up in the leaders themselves and their 
yeah. priorities and their worldview. But I might bring um, Yangbin into the conversation here. Uh, if transformational leaders have created this kind of domestic ideational and institutional environment to pursue uh, this, the China dream, you know, the idea of China being a global power. And part of this is in harnessing and mobilizing uh, and inflaming nationalism. So uh, your research has spent a lot of time considering nationalism in China and Xi Jinping has sort of increasingly reasserted his, his power using, uh, using nationalism and centralizing uh, power in, in a sort of personalized foreign policy. So what, in your view, having just heard uh, Professor Zhao's explanation, what do you think is driving um, Xi's policies? Uh, thanks, Beck. Um, so to answer this question, uh, I think I'm not an expert in international uh, relations. So um, I'm more a humanity uh, person. So I'm thinking um, that the question for this driving force of his foreign policy, um, Xi Jinping's foreign policy, uh, where to tackle it? Yeah. Um, one of the perspective I try to do is um, to answer, to find his early years, the experience. The answer, from my understanding, I think um, people can find an, uh, an angle from his useful ex experience. Um, because uh, his ex unique experience um, with his generation being sent back to the countryside in Fuping County and in rural area, that's a very poor area in uh, Shanxi province. So he lived uh, through a very hard life during that time uh, as a um, pro very high profile um, um, the communist cadres uh, tribes. So you can imagine that uh, the lives in the Fuping countryside is a big contrast uh, with the Beijing um, urban life. So interestingly, he lived through that uh, hardship and when he came to uh, the power and became supreme uh, leader, now he, I guess he reflect from this experience. And the rationale for my understanding is that if I can live through this hardship uh, in the countryside, and so I bring uh, the nation now became a stronger uh, country. So why should I, why can't I, uh, teach my children, uh, our young generation and nowadays. You also uh, can do this. So uh, with a, such a, a way of better of lifestyle today, so you might harness uh, your strengths uh, from this time. And now the new challenge is um, not for fighting for poverty, but for your generation, that's for uh, fighting for uh, any aggressions or imagined aggression from the West. So that's the rationale. Uh, I think formation year experience really uh, means a lot as a divisive factor in uh, making his uh, foreign policy. The point that was raised before is that not all leaders are successful uh, in surviving uh, Chinese politics and there has to be sort of skills and attributes that leaders have in order to be able to mobilise nationalism, in order to be able to make it effective uh, in, in pursuing a particular policy pathway and enabling someone like Xi Jinping um, to, to be able to you know, get rid of term limits, for example, and to be able to, 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 to sustain his power and leadership. And I wanted to ask you about this in particular in relation to the, the pandemic because China has seemed to struggle with a kind of restless and at times restive civilian population, something that hasn't uh, always happened uh, over the years. So has the, the Chinese Communist Party experienced a setback due to the pandemic, and are they having trouble now in controlling the narrative? Um, thank you. Uh, yeah, um, this is a very uh, latest uh, question uh, because uh, the whole world uh, just watched that. And um, in December or around that time, uh, right before the policy change about COVID management, uh, we saw uh, across 
quite a few cities, uh, major cities in China, there are uh, uh, demonstrations uh, sporadically, but um, young people uh, come to the, the streets to protest, uh, protect that policy, strict policy. Uh, um, uh, if you say that's a, a setback, uh, I think, uh, yeah, it happened and it, it worked. And I'm always thinking of this uh, interesting question as looming. In the ancient time, the olden days, uh, one of the question is um, for ordinary people, uh, when they have, uh, for example, miserable, miserable life or mistreated by the local um, officials, they always have a, a fundamental, ultimate question towards the very top, and the, the, the person, the emperor, uh, standing in the apex. So, can you hear my voice? But with this, um, interesting today, with this internet age, so w we can paraphrase the question, can uh, the leader, uh, can she uh, hear uh, the young people's uh, yeah, protest, their uh, dissatisfaction. Uh, my answer is, I think, uh, yes, he listened and he knew it. But of course, um, from again, from the Western media, and we heard that uh, she actually acknowledged that uh, towards, I think it's a um, Dutch media um, a journalist uh, question. Um, he he mentioned that we knew that this is because of dissatisfaction from the young people, and that means he heard this and he acts. And obviously, uh, the, uh, the the way still will be the same. So, um, if the last question the answer, uh, how successful uh, do them control the narrative? Um, I keep observing this and interestingly say from December and towards now January and February and these sort of uh, different voices, dissatisfactions, all this now totally been overshadowed by other things, predominantly by the celebration of the Lunar New Year and celebration of the re uh, covering of the economy, so in some, in that way, somehow actually this has been silenced, and uh, uh, we can tell that uh, this type of different voice now it's just like a sparkle, uh, but quickly it's gone. But my understanding is uh, when I read Professor Zhao's book, um, he mentioned that China has a very tight control about information flow, and he also um, suggests that uh, even though uh, we are living in this uh, internet age, uh, so um, Chinese media has been highly censored. That's right. But on the other side, it's interestingly different voices still can actually penetrate through uh, Chinese society, particularly the youth society. And today's for the entire China, it looks like uh, people living in a bipolarized uh, world. Everybody knew something, but everybody do something differently. That's the way of maybe another way, pragmatism uh, surviving reality. Thank you. Uh, so Diane, uh, in his opening remarks to National Congress last year, President Xi spoke of Hong Kong and their major, this is a quote, major transition from chaos to governance uh, and advocated for Taiwan's, another quote, peaceful reunification, but vowed not to renounce the, the use of force. So what do you think Xi Jinping's long-term intentions are towards communities such as Taiwan and Hong Kong? Thank you. Um, I think it's really, it's always difficult to imagine and guess <laughs> what the president's intentions are, but try to do my job. I guess the first thing uh, that I want to do uh, is sort of put this in context and try to give a less literal translation uh, of those two uh, remarks. And the first one about Hong Kong, about this transition from chaos to governance and the original Chinese uh, believe that many of you here speak Chinese. So uh, it's, it's 由乱到治, and it actually has the second 
the second line, which is So that really, I mean, uh, so transition from chaos to governance uh, really uh, appeared in the early part of the report when uh, the report tried to summarize all its achievements during the past five years. And the second line, uh, really uh, is seen in the in the latter part of it when it's trying to outline some of the policies it's going to adopt for the future. So what I want to say is um, perhaps a better translation wouldn't be governance because governance would just give you an impression that this will be what what's going to be in Hong Kong in the future in terms of you know how it's going to be governed. But actually here, uh, actually is an adjective which is, which is trying to say social order or orderly. So it's really to try to say that from the chaotic situation that we used to see Hong Kong now is that the society now can resume this order. And that would explain also the second line, which is how based on social order, um, all these economic policies and the measures can be adopted uh, towards prosperity. So that's the first part of it. And I guess for uh, Hong Kong and Taiwan, we're seeing really quite different scenarios. So I would definitely imagine the tensions will be different. Uh, with Taiwan, I guess, um, Professor Zhao this morning was talking about war, uh, the likelihood of war. And I guess I'm going to repeat what I said 12 months ago when I was doing a panel discussion with Tim Lynch, Robert Ross, and Michael Wesley about the likelihood of war in Asia Pacific. <laughs> I would say that I belong to the group which um, is just less pessimistic uh, about the situation. But I think something that is important to um, note for the future is that increasingly, I think the danger would lie in the fact that more and more Western countries and Western leaders talk about that, talk about the likelihood of, of war and also warn against it, uh, whether they name China or not. <laughs> I think the more likely this will be perceived in China, whether by the top leadership or more uh, more public to be uh, interpreted and perceived in China as something that's quite likely, or at least something that the Western countries are preparing for, or even possible for them to take or act preemptively. So I guess the real danger is really there, the, 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 the miscalculation. Uh, but then I guess um, the interesting thing um, about Hong Kong is that and I would like to uh, know this um, because this may be surprising to many foreign observers is that actually um, the interesting thing is the level of uh, the level of chaos in Hong Kong at first was by no means anticipated by the central government. And that's why at first they really were sort of slow. And then later on, when they found that the level the level of chaos was just astounding, and also there's a high visibility of foreign influence there in Hong Kong, and that's when um, the, the central government was alarmed, and then later on we see all those uh, responsive actions. So, unfortunately, I know that many people would hope that Hong Kong will last longer, like what it used to be. But then, unfortunately, um, seeing what we are seeing right now is going to be like that, and even possible that we're going to see an enhanced uh, version of like a two, like a two point <laughs> version of governance in Hong Kong, but. The, the other side of it when you talk about is that for the past 12 months, what we have seen increasingly in China is the central government has really taken quite a lot of economic, social and cultural measures to try to cultivate the sense of belonging among people in Hong Kong. So uh, economically, we see a lot of, for example, based on the idea of the greater Bay Area. So that includes really Guangdong, Hong Kong and Macau. So really uh, a lot of favorable uh, economic policies, incentives to try to bring them together. So uh, that definitely would benefit people, their employment, income and everything. But then the other part of it is really about the our sense of belonging or identity, some scholars like to say. And what we have seen the past 12 months is that there have been really quite a lot of um, even entertainment shows, all kinds of initiatives to try to, for example, 
revitalize or reintroduce Cantonese songs to the mainland, which is uh, really surprising because it's really my generation, people who are in their 40s, <laughs> who used to <laughs> listen to Cantonese songs. And my daughter's generation, those who are in 20, they never, they never, and they don't have the interesting <laughs> in that Cantonese. So I guess this will also be a part of that, that you will see that with such measures, that there will be social cohesion and sense of belonging, that's what we say. Thank you. Just just a follow-up question for you there. And I think, Yangming, you agree with me when I say it, your answer is, highlights how important language study is <laughs> and uh, very much like to promote uh, the, the study and the education of, of Chinese languages. Uh, but on what, on what you were saying about, you know, you've, you've been involved in these discussions about the likelihood of war. And that is something that we come back to sort of again and again. And um, Professor Zhao in the book uh, sort of makes a, a comparison at some point between uh, the overconfidence of Xi and what Putin is doing in uh, in Ukraine and that Xi's power grab might be just as dangerous as Putin. So I was wondering, Diane, do you agree that Xi Jinping is, is overconfident? And is this, you know, does this sort of precipitate a risk of, of conflict in the region? Thank you. Um, yeah, overconfidence by anyone <laughs> can be risky. <laughs> and we have seen really uh, a lot of leaders who, who tend to be overconfident and pretty much so that's how they rise to power. <laughs> they do have a big ego full of themselves. But then um, I definitely agree with Professor Zhao in that one. He said this overconfidence will be risky, so uh, which will result in miscalculation and all these things. But there are two points I'd like to raise now. And the first thing is that, I mean, one side of it is overconfidence and some mistakes. We have seen plenty of them. But then on the other side of it, we have also seen really good cases of how he uh, tactfully and skillfully handle the situation. Now, I would say his handling of Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, I mean, personally, I think that's uh, that's, that's not overconfidence and that's not a mistake. But what we see, I mean, we're putting, putting aside the situation and how we judge it. But then I think uh, purely looking at it from uh, crisis management, from the perspective of crisis management, I think he really uh, tactfully sort of made the best use of the situations at that time to his and also to China's advantage. So uh, this really um, is agreed by many people in China as well. And the second thing is that Professor Zhao was, was also talking about this singular, his singular uh, opinions and also how he was surrounded by so many people who were afraid to uh, speak out. But um, I just want to add that, um, and I'm going to quote Tony Abbott again, perhaps I hope I will do him justice. I think it's really about, I mean, it's, it's, it's both fear and greed. I mean, some people will see fear and then some people will see greed. We see really quite a lot of people in, in academia, <laughs> in media, really government or walks of life really embracing this and you're just uh, using that to you know just for their own advantage so there's a part of the picture as well unfortunately <laughs> it is a wonderful quote the fear and creed <laughs> i've been known to use that one myself uh it, it, yes it's quite quite a good one from uh, former prime minister tony abbott there uh we will get to the q a but just um before we do that one uh final question from me to you professor Zhao. There's some points that are made, particularly towards the end of the book, that uh, I think really resonate with my observations as, a, as an observer of uh, international relations in Asia politics. Uh, and some of them are that, that China hasn't been able to present itself really as an alternative leader, that it has not really been able to bring other states along with it. It doesn't have an, a system of allies like the United States does. It hasn't clearly outlined new rules. I mean, this is in, in my area of maritime security, it's very clear that, um, that what, what the new rules-based order might look like is very ambiguous and very uncertain. And that uh, there are certain domestic and economic challenges that mean that China's global success is not inevitable. Uh, and it makes, the book makes an important point. And it comes back to what I mentioned before about 
this concept of inevitability and you say that neither China's undeniable successes nor America's decline is inevitable. So having examined the past of, of foreign policy uh, in the People's Republic of China, what does your study suggest about its future? Uh, in a human society, uh, nothing is inevitable. And uh, uh, leaders in that case, uh, human efforts uh, very often could make difference. So uh, when talk about China's future, uh, I think it's uh, very uncertain at this time. It could go uh, many directions. Uh, uh, many people uh, two or three years ago uh, talk about China's uh, rise uh, inevitable and China will overtake the US uh, in 10 years if not in five years as the largest economy. And uh, a lot of Chinese scholars also talk about China already 2014 or 2015 already overtook US uh, in a purchase parity uh, price uh, as a largest economy and also even technologically and uh, militarily China already overtook the United States. But now this type of talks has been faded, has been somehow disappeared, uh, especially in the uh, Western countries. And uh, I was in Washington uh, uh, last month and also last week I was giving a, a talk at the US uh, Army War College. Uh, at both occasions, the questions I got was, uh, uh, you were talking about Xi Jinping's uh, uh, aggressive foreign, foreign policy. Should we care about that? Because uh, uh, China is no longer uh, uh, rising rapidly. What we are talking about is a decline in China. And uh, if China's uh, uh, growth has uh, peaked. So the two extremes now, uh, only two years we saw these type of uh, uh, changes. And uh, the in Chinese, the, the success is one person and the failure is the same person. And uh, when Xi Jinping came to office, so many people had such a huge hope for him, all expectations for him. To, and also he talked so much about China's uh, China dream and uh, great rejuvenation and uh, to make China the most powerful nation in the world. And um, before him, there were so many accumulation of the Chinese wealth and uh, uh, other aspects. So uh, that's why two years ago, people, up to three years ago, so many people talked about China's uh, uh, inevitable rise or inevitable uh, uh, surpass over the United States. But also because of Xi Jinping's policy in the last several years, especially the last three years, uh, 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 militarily and uh, uh, diplomatically, politically, he met so many enemies, as uh, you quoted. And uh, China does not have uh, many friends. The only ally in Asia is North Korea, which uh, I don't think is it's, uh, really asset, it's uh, somehow liability. Mm. And uh, Pakistan may be another one. I don't know if you can count, count the Pakistan as an uh, asset. It's also somehow liability. Other than this, you can see from uh, South Korea, from Japan, Australia, and uh, even Philippines. And this week we saw the Secretary of Defense, U.S., uh, uh, talk about uh, opening more military bases for the United States. Mm -hmm. And uh, all those countries uh, are uh, rank, uh, ranging from uh, uh, very hostile to China, all uh, maintaining a distance from China. So China does not have those uh, friends. In fact, uh, uh, also in a uh, uh, big power relationship, although China allied with Russia, but this has elevated uh, uh, elev China with many other big powers, especially the United States. Uh, and uh, 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 not only China lost the uh, potentially valuable partners, but also uh, met their rivals united. We saw the Quad, we saw the uh, August, all those kind of uh, alliances, all in Chinese terms, they call the uh, Asian NATO, try to contain China. So Xi Jinping really awakened all those countries to China's uh, ambition 
and uh, threat and a soft power. I don't, as you mentioned, that the international order, everything China tried to reshape, really does not have many uh, followers, especially when China now becomes even increasingly more authoritarian and repressive. And uh, I don't think those type of uh, norms could be accepted by majority of uh, international community. So that's why we see China, also economically, I think, is even much worse. The uh, COVID zero policy and the sharp U-turn last month has hurt Chinese economy so dramatically. It's a big, big mistake he, she has made. And uh, in that, uh, and also she had made a lot of uh, uh, wrong economic decisions, such as uh, 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 common prosperity and uh, his suppression of the uh, platform uh, uh, economy, technology, uh, and especially private sector, uh, and try to uh, strengthen only the state-owned enterprises and also real estate. Another these kind of uh, sectors, economic policies uh, he made, finally now hunch back, hunch back to him at this time. So China, in that context, uh, its future is a very, very uncertain. I don't know. I don't think China's rise is inevitable, and uh, of course, uh, it could still grow, but definitely in a much, much slower pace. And uh, I don't know if China will even ever take over the U.S. in the next twenty years. So that's a, a very uncertain uh, picture of China's future. Finally, here I want to also mention that uh, in terms of those kind of uncertainties, uh, China's foreign policy, international behavior will be become even more unpredictable at this point. As we mentioned, that uh, uh, Xi Jinping's uh, uh, power concentration now has uh, made him making decisions in a bubble, just like Putin uh, uh, making decision to invade Ukraine. He will not get those uh, truths about what's going on in China and outside China, and he has been heard only what he wanted to hear, and uh, so he might make wrong decisions. And uh, the U-turn of uh, zero COVID is a very good example. It's a so wrong and stupid decision-making process, but that happened. So in that case, if he decided to Take Taiwan, for example, if a uh, domestic challenges uh, he want to di divert, he might take international aggression. Here, Taiwan is a good example. He, if he wants to take over Taiwan by force, nobody in the Chinese system will stop him. No forces could prevent him from doing that. Then that will make China's future even more uncertain, more dangerous. Thank you for that. Uh, so I'm going to invite people in the room here. Are there any questions for our panel? I see a hand. I might do a round of questions. So uh, if you can speak into the microphone and keep it brief. Thank you. We don't have much time. Isn't the hunger for power a global problem, not just a Chinese problem? I like that. Brief. Uh <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Professor Zhao said that uh, he regards the Belt and Road as, a fa as having been a failure. I wonder if you can expand on that. Why do you uh, believe uh, Belt and Road's a failure? I'm really glad that question has been asked. That's what I would have asked as well. Uh... I know trying to predict the future is never easy, but um, if Xi Jinping was to eventually leave the leadership uh, by natural causes, could his policies uh, continue to be implemented or would there be those in the senior leadership that might want to dismantle what he's built over the last decade? Thank you. So three great questions there. Uh, what I might do is I might ask our panellists to um, choose which question they would like to respond to. And I'm actually going to add another question uh, for the consideration of the panel, which is actually combining some of the questions that we received online. And it's about uh, how Chinese citizens uh, view the CCP and about how um, Xi Jinping might be able to reconnect or connect with younger Chinese citizens. So uh, maybe, Professor Zhao, I'll, I'll start with you if you've got responses to the questions uh, that have been asked. It, let me start from your question here about young Chinese uh, uh, perception of Xi Jinping. 
because uh, she is an intensive uh, so-called patriotic education campaign since he came to office, uh, uh, which uh, tried to reaffirm the, the leadership of the CCP uh, as a success, the success of China, China model. Uh, of uh, economic development and the political development under the authoritarian one-party system. Um, we talked about nationalism uh, earlier. Uh, the patriotic education campaign has been the long longest um, uh, propaganda and uh, indoctrination campaign in the PRC history since the 1990s. And, uh, but uh, before Xi Jinping, this type of uh, nationalist uh, indoctrination uh, focused on uh, affirmative us. China was good. Uh, uh, we have uh, done everything we want to do or should do to make China strong, develop China economy, everything. But Xi Jinping has changed this. Uh, he not only tried to affirm uh, positive us, but also he have uh, emphasized and targeted uh, negative and evil others. Here are Western powers and Western values. And uh, um, uh, Yang Bin mentioned that information control. He also tried to build a very powerful uh, firewall and using all those technology to uh, control information. So the young generation of the Chinese uh, people, uh, especially those who uh, were born in, after 1990s or after 1980s, uh, they grew up in those kind of patriotic education. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, during those years, uh, China's economy uh, uh, was uh, rapidly uh, growing. So they only saw those opportunities. They only saw the prosperity of China. So they became increasingly nationalistic uh, for the, against the Western powers, uh, have a very negative view of the United States and uh, had uh, supported uh, very assertive foreign policy, even domestic authoritarian system. Even some of them thought the firewall uh, was good for, for China because they uh, filtered all the bad information for the younger generation. So these people grew up in that type of environment until last year. I think 2022 uh, was a turning point in the PRC history because the, this younger generation suffered so much in the last three years. And uh, the youth unemployment in China has been so high. And uh, the, uh, one fifth of the youth cannot find jobs. And uh, also the, the lockdown for a lot of those people, uh, they were online uh, going to school and uh, their education somehow suffered so much. And uh, especially for those uh, uh, families, uh, kids, young, young people not from privileged families, the education had been their only path to get uh, mobility. But this also somehow disappeared for those people. So the young generation in China today becomes, uh, I think, very disillusioned about Xi Jinping, about uh, the Communist Party. That's, why we saw those uh, demonstrations. But what they can do in China, I see they have done, that these groups have been divided into three types, three groups. One is uh, those we saw in uh, November. They went to streets to protest, not only protest zero COVID policy, they also tried to uh, um, protest Again, the communist regime and Xi Jinping himself, they said Xi Jinping to step down, the communist party stepped down, that's those people. But this is a very, very dangerous path in China. And after the uh, U-turn, Xi Jinping opened up, uh, suppressed these uh, protests, a lot of them have gone to jail. And uh, they basically uh, sacrificed their career. So not many people dare to go to that uh, path. Although a lot of people had a similar uh, thinking, but they would not dare to sacrifice themselves. So there are two other ways for the Chinese uh, youth now. One is Chinese called the Tangping, is the to lie flat, uh, to do minimum, just for survive. That's another way to protest the current policy. 
because they don't see hope. They don't see what or efforts they made will uh, 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 compensate, will be compensated, will uh, be uh, uh, will receive what they supposed to receive. So they will just knife uh, flat. The third type is uh, a lot of people now try to get out of China. Uh, Chinese, the most uh, uh, hot term uh, in China today among those educated youth is run, run out of China. Uh, in the Chinese term, it's called run. Run, run is a Chinese term, uh, sound like run, to run out of China, to come to Australia, come to the United States. If they cannot come these two countries, they go to Europe, they even go to um, uh, Africa, all Southeast Asia, all uh, Latin American countries. They get out of China, a lot of these kind of people. And also rich people want to get out, get their young, their rich kids to out of China. So these are those uh, Chinese youth situation this time. Of course, other than the three, we still have those uh, support, the Communist Party. But uh, those people are increasingly reduced in the last three years. One by one road, uh, very quick, I don't want to take too much time, is a, is a larger Chinese guy, Lan Wei Gongcheng. Xi Jinping has been a big uh, king of uh, to start everything huge, then and nothing. And uh, one by one road is one of them. And also Xiong'an in the uh, Chinese Hebei province starts so huge. But now it's almost 10 years, nothing happened there. Really just like a ghost town there, mm -hmm. built so many buildings. And uh, one by one road, I don't think China can afford to complete that. Mm -hmm. And also the responses from international community is also very not very that uh, positive. Uh, and those are so-called that uh, trap. Diplomacy. That trap is not for those development countries, for China. China had those kind of bad loans to those countries. They cannot get back. They have to write off. Then China cannot afford. So there are a lot of things. I don't want to get into that. Too many problems on that. Mm, another question. I, maybe I think I should stop here. That other people to answer them. Maybe I answer that your question. Um, uh, certainty is the certainty in terms of this question, and we need to put into perspective even the liberal democratic uh, countries for the next uh, leadership, um, for next governments, what's the policy? Nobody can predict a very certain uh, trajectory. Um, but my final thoughts is about the uh, um, other side. Uh, my suggestion is if we really want to understand a, a real China, and we need to be there. And thanks for this um, post-pandemic um, travel now is making available. I think the best way for everyone, China observer or individual um, from the public from the West, we need to go there to see that. Maybe there is more complicated picture or different color where we can see that. That's a hint. Thank you. Yeah, I just want to echo with Professor Zhao and also um, uh, Dr. Chen about that one, um, particularly on the uh, really serious unemployment problem around the youth for the past two years. And I still have former students back in China. So um, it's not just the governments, but also businesses are increasingly having problems, financial problems. And that's why they are recruiting less and uh, fewer and fewer people. So hopefully if the economy gets better, <laughs> they can be higher back. But I just try to respond to the question about how um, the Communist Party can, recon uh, can connect or reconnect with the young people. I think the interesting thing is you're definitely right in that there's problem there. It's increasingly difficult. But then I guess what I want to say is that the kind of better educated, more critical lot still are a really very small portion of the 1.4 billion people we're looking at in China. If you, for example, watch TikTok, you would understand <laughs> And guess it's pretty much the same here as well. You said there are still so many young people who are, because they are fed by really biased news or they are not bilingual, they don't have access to multi sources of media or information. So that would be, yeah, I mean, still 
And also the, the thing about Chinese uh, to working government bodies, uh, it's, it's, it's almost a must that you are a party member. Well, thank you very much. Uh, thank you to our panellists. I'm afraid that that is all we have time for this afternoon. Uh, but it has been a really fascinating discussion. Uh, there's a lot of points I, I wish that we could pick up further. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, we don't have the time uh, this afternoon. But thank you again. It's great to be able to celebrate your book uh, that is available online. If anybody needs any information about how to get a copy of that book, Latrobe Asia is happy to assist. Uh, but please follow us on Twitter at Latrobe Asia uh, and join our mailing list if you're not already on it to find out more details for online events uh, and hybrid events and Latrobe Asia publications. Uh, but thank you again uh, and wishing you all an excellent weekend. What a, what a great way to, to finish the working week with this event. Thank you.